Good morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? I'm Pastor Marty. I am uh, the student ministry pastor here at Redemption Church, and I have the honor of bringing the message this morning. Uh, We'll be in 1 John chapter 3, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. While you're turning there, uh, I have a couple of quick announcements. Uh, First off, we have new t-shirts for sale out in the lobby where the t-shirts usually are. I think there's some older ones out there still, but we have a new new rotation of t-shirts. Great design. I know the guy who designed them. They're wonderful. If it's me. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. It was a collaborative effort. Okay. And so if you don't like them, uh, it was Fred's idea. If you like them, it was my idea. Okay. Um, but those are $12 each if you want one. Uh, and that's just, uh, something to, to consider as you, uh, collect your redemption merch. Um, youth Bible study, uh, the youth group has ended. It ended this past week with a great night uh, this past Monday, we met with the CIA ministry here at Redemption and shared a meal, heard some uh, awesome testimonies from both the youth students and from uh, some of the members of the CIA. It was a great, great evening, but we are breaking for the summer, kind of. We're breaking for the summer when it comes to every Monday youth group, but starting on June 19th, so next Monday at 6.30 here at the church, we'll probably be meeting in the Blue Room Um, we are going to be doing a Bible study that's an every other week event. It's not youth group. It's not, you know, come eat food, play games, have a message kind of thing. It's come study the Bible. And so if you have a student who's going into seventh grade or is currently in seventh grade through 12th grade, uh, they are more than welcome to join us on Mondays every other week. If you have any questions about that, you can see me afterwards. I have a, uh, we have a parents WhatsApp group that I try to get all the parents connected with and I'll be putting information about that in that chat. So if your student's interested, next Monday starting at 6.30, we're gonna be studying through Galatians throughout the summer months. So it's gonna be a really good time. And then lastly, as India mentioned, this is not, this has nothing to do with the sermon or anything like that. This is for VBS this week, which we're really excited about. So if you have a student who's going into uh, kindergarten through sixth grade, that is an event for them. And if you haven't registered yet, You're not too late. You can still register and bring your kid this week. It's every night this week from six to eight. It's gonna be a really, really awesome time. I'm super excited about it. I'm mostly excited to see Garrett in the skit because it's Garrett and it's a skit that has to do with medieval stuff. I don't know. I wanna hear what his medieval accent sounds like. So all that to say, come out, come hang out. If you have any questions about that, you can see Matt or Erica Adams, one of the kids' ministry leaders. They'll be uh, be able to answer any questions that you might have. Other than that, hopefully you found 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24 to conclude this chapter this week. So I'll read, pray, and then we'll get into the message. The Bible says this, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now, this is his command that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you again so much for this day. God, we thank you for the gathering of the saints. We thank you for Redemption Church and all the work that you're doing in and throughout uh, Lower Borough and and even Sarver, Lord, with the time of fellowship this past Friday. Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. 
Thank you that you are the cornerstone of our faith, that our foundation is built on nothing else because all other ground is, is sinking and shifting sand. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, I pray that our hearts would be attentive, that we would have ears to listen, hearts to receive, and Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would convict, would encourage, and that we would be more like your son because of it. Father, have your will be done over these next few moments, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very quickly, before we jump right in, I, I want to remind us of something significant about John's letter. You have to remember who John is writing to. John is writing to believers. John is writing to professing Christians, those who claim to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. And I say this because the passage that we're in today deals primarily with believers, specifically this idea of assurance of salvation. So my hope is that if you're here today and you're unsure maybe about where you stand with this whole Christian thing, this whole Jesus thing, redemption, maybe you are a believer, but the status of your salvation has been in question for some time in your mind, or maybe you're here and you just flat out reject Jesus, that you would allow John's words to a group of believers transcend time and somehow land on your heart this morning. This topic is one of major significance, especially to us believers as we navigate this life. And so with that being said, what I want to do in this passage is highlight four things that believers can expect in this life. You'll notice that in John's letter, these are statements of fact, as if John knows that these things will happen. They will come about. It's not maybe, it's not if. And I've titled this sermon, This is How We Will Know, because it comes right from the text. There is an assurance that we can have. So if you're taking notes and following along in that way, let's fill in some blanks right off the bat. You'll see on the handout, it says, as believers, number one, we can live with certainty. As believers, we can live with certainty. If you look back at verse 19, this is how he starts it. He says, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Again, notice John's statement of fact here. We will know. And as discussed just a moment ago, the we here is all believers. This is how Christians will know that they belong to the truth. Some translations say that they are of the truth, and we can understand from Scripture, specifically John, same John, his gospel in chapter 14, verse uh, 6, Jesus stated a very profound statement where he said to his disciples in the upper room, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So we here are individuals whose lives have been captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would affirm the same command that John gives in verse 23 here, believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Not only will we know that we belong to the truth, but John says this in turn will reassure our hearts. The word reassure that John uses here is that of strong persuasion. 
Therefore, as believers, John says, we can live with certainty. We can know that we have full acceptance before a holy God. And this no doubt ties into verse 24, which we'll look at at the end of the sermon. Uh, I'll mention that a little bit later, but, but the same Holy Spirit that convicts us, that, that draws us to God, that regenerates us in our dead state of sin, that grants us faith to believe in Christ, is the same Holy Spirit who now that you are in Christ convinces you with a strong persuasion that you belong to the Lord. Now, this assurance can and it will look differently for different believers in different stages of life or phases of life, different stages of spiritual maturity, but it is assurance nonetheless. As we've navigated many difficult passages in John's letter so far, where he paints with that very distinguished black and white brush that kind of, as, as Pastor Fred put it, you hold that mirror up and you look at yourself and you start thinking, man, John says, if I do this, then the truth is not in me. If I don't do these things, am I really saved? You might start looking at your life and examining your life and thinking, wow, I'm not doing any of the things that John says that I should be doing. And I claim to be a Christian. Where, where am I in all of this? But it's interesting, one of the central themes, as a matter of fact, one of the most used words in John's letter is this word, no. No. It's used roughly 38 or 39 times throughout his letter. So even though X, Y, or Z, even though we have these very black and white issues, you as a Christian can know that you know that you know that you are of the truth. Now, I don't wanna jump ahead and spoil anything, but I'm going to. If you look over at chapter five, verse 13, we can clearly see John's stamp of approval on this fact. He says in uh, verse 13 of chapter five, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You hear the tone of reassurance there. So not only does God wanna save us, he wants us to know that he has saved us and to be secure in that, not to go through life second guessing, well, I made a mistake, am I now out of God's favor? He wants us to know what family we belong to, who our true heavenly father is, and whose children we ultimately are. This is the certainty we have. Now, some people struggle with certainty in their faith for different reasons, and I once heard a pastor talk about four different reasons that I'm just gonna mention. I'm not even gonna go into this very, very much in depth. I'm just gonna mention these as, because maybe this is you, and as you make application later in this sermon, you might reflect back on one of these four things and think, yeah, that's where I am. I need to address that. So people who wrestle with this idea of certainty, this gospel assurance, again, I didn't come up with this list. This is something that I've heard preached before. Uh, the pastor said, there's four possible reasons given for people who may not have the full assurance of their salvation. One is a lack of knowledge of the truth. What do I mean by that? They have enough knowledge for salvation to call upon the name of the Lord to save them, but to be assured of that throughout life and the different things that life throws at them from that moment on is a different story. What they lack is sound doctrine. These are people who don't know the gospel through and through. 
They know that I've trusted in Jesus for salvation, but now I have no other depth beyond that to the point where when the world accuses you or Satan accuses you or you accuse yourself of continuing to live in certain sin, which we will as Christians still struggle with our fleshly desires, we then condemn ourselves and say, well, I must be out of God's favor. He must not have really saved me at that point. They lack knowledge of the truth too. Some people just have obsessive personalities. These are people who have what, what this pastor said is paralysis analysis. They overthink everything. And whenever I make a mistake, so they, they can only go so far. But when faith needs to kick in and assure them, they shy away. They, these are individuals who gaze at themselves more and then glance at Christ every now and again versus gazing at Christ and glancing at themselves. Introspection is a good thing. Don't hear me knock that, but not to the point where it is consistently condemning, which we'll talk about in a minute. Number three is, and number three and four kind of go hand in hand, prolonged disobedience is another thing that may cause you to feel as if, well, I'm not really secure in my salvation. You ask yourself a question like, could I really be saved and living like this? People who live this way, this, this pastor put it, they take a you problem and they make it a God problem. See, we have a problem with disobedience and then we turn it and say, well, God must not have kept his promise and, and secured my salvation. I don't know who needs to hear this, but God hasn't failed in saving you. God has not failed in his plan of redemption. It's probably on you. But then number three is unconfessed sin. See, unconfessed sin is like mud on the windshield with no wiper fluid. You're just going throughout life blind. And I'm talking about as believers, we can live this way. See, anything other than confessing your sin to God who wants to forgive you is like trying to clean a muddy windshield with more mud. You're just gonna make it 10 times worse for yourself. Confession clears your vision and can give you a renewed sense of security. So maybe one of those four areas, if that's you this morning, where, you know, I, I don't live with certainty of my salvation. I believe in Jesus. I, I believe in his work on the cross. I think I'm saved, but I don't really have any assurance of that. Is one of these four areas the reason why? But not only as Christians can we live with certainty. Number two, as Christians, our hearts will condemn us. So the Bible said, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. So even though our hearts are assured as believers, there are times when we will feel condemned. We all to varying degrees have a condemning conscience. See, when we sin, everybody goes through this phase. When you sin, you look to assign fault and blame to someone or something in your life. Most of the time, we look outward first and say, this has got to be somebody else's fault. But then after that passes over, or some people just skip over that and go right to the self-condemnation. They look inward and say, man, I'm a terrible person. I, God could not save me. Uh, God did save me, but he, the forgiveness that he offers could cover all of my sins except for this one thing that I've done. This manifests in a way of self-condemnation. Now, I'm gonna be very careful how I say this or word this, but this is healthy to a point. And what do I mean by that? It depends on how you define it. I wanna make the argument 
that we must have a healthy and realistic view of sin in our lives as believers. See, that's needed. Sin, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, Fred stood on this stage and said, sin is lawlessness. It is the work of Satan. That's a serious thing. And if sin is offensive to a holy God, how much more so should we consider how offensive it is to a God that we call our father? You may be thinking, but Pastor Marty, you know, we, we ought not dwell on our sin anymore as Christians. The old is gone, the new has come, right? And to that, I would say absolutely, yes, amen. But what I'm getting at, th- think about it this way. If you have a broken bone in your body, your body needs to know that, correct? Would everybody affirm that statement? If you have a broken bone in your body, your body needs to know that. Yes, okay. Because if you ignore it, you're going to have a much bigger problem down the road. Your body needs to feel the pain of trying to use that bone. Why? Because that will alert you that there is a problem, a problem that needs addressed. If you want a biblical example of someone who has experienced the weight and the reality and the severity of their sin, I would look no further than David. See, David is a man that committed a very heinous, well, multiple things. He's a man that's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, but still sinned in one of the most profound ways of committing adultery and then to cover up the adultery, he committed murder. There was just a lot of things that were pretty messed up in David's life, so much so that when he was presented with the reality of the sin by Nathan, he penned Psalm 51, a psalm that many of us might know uh, certain verses off by heart. And Psalm 51 is where he says things like, I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Someone who feels the weight. He says, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. Indeed, he goes back to the beginning. He said, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me someone who feels the weight of their sin. But what I love about our passage and what I love about David's story, especially even if you read Psalm 51, you'll see this, although it hurts and it's uncomfortable when we feel this, God does not leave us there, which leads me to point number three. As believers, we can be comforted knowing that God is greater than our hearts. So although as believers, our hearts will condemn us, number three is we can be comforted knowing that God is greater than our hearts. I'm stealing this right from the text. (laughs) It says, whenever our hearts condemn us in verse 20, but then it stops there and it says, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. So although what we've just reflected on about our hearts can weigh heavy and it is and it should be, sin should bother us deeply as believers. Paul talks about godly sorrow is what ultimately can lead to repentance in Christ. The moment of salvation, if there's not godly sorrow there and you don't feel the weight of your sin, what do you feel you need saved from? But not only that, even after that, in Romans chapter seven, uh, Paul has this very uh, well-known, I guess, it's not a monologue because he's, ta- he's writing a letter. I don't know, a very well-known way of putting uh, this wrestle with his flesh. 
And he says things like, listen, the, the evil that I know I shouldn't do, I do it. And the things that, the good things that I know I should be doing, I'm not doing those things. And he kind of, he goes back and forth and it's this very long drawn out way of saying I'm wrestling with my flesh because I'm not doing what I should be doing and I'm doing the things that I know I shouldn't be doing. And he comes to this conclusion at the end of this long rant where he says, what a wretched man that I am. Then he asks a rhetorical question, who will rescue me from this body of death? He feels the weight of this battle between I wanna live right for God, but I still wrestle with my flesh. But even though we feel the weight of that, isn't it reassuring to know that God is greater than our hearts? Even when we are mentally, emotionally, spiritually disoriented, those moments where your hearts do condemn you, God knows exactly where your soul lies as a believer. See, the examination of ourself can oftentimes be skewed or blurred or influenced by Satan or we're leading with our flesh. And by the way, when John says that he knows all things, he's not lying. God does know all things and he knows them perfectly. Now, the fact that God knows all things and knows our hearts is both terrifying and comforting. It's terrifying because of sin. Hebrews 4.13 says, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Everything that you think, everything that you feel, Everything that you do in secret where nobody else in this room may know that you struggle with X, Y, or Z, God knows. And that, in a way, that could terrify us, but it keeps a healthy fear of God in check, knowing that at any moment he knows my thoughts, he knows my intentions, he knows my heart. But it's comforting at the same time because although he knows all of those things, he still loves and offers his forgiveness. That's where the comfort comes into play. We've seen this all throughout this letter. In chapter one, we've see, we saw that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In chapter two, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In chapter three, even, he, Christ, was revealed so that he might take away our sins. So as believers, we can live with certainty and yet we must expect that our hearts will condemn us but we can be comforted knowing that God is greater than our hearts. And then as believers, and I wanna camp out here for the remainder of our time, number four, as believers, we can have confidence in our salvation. As believers, we can have confidence in our salvation. If you look at verse 21, John says, dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now I wanna pause there and I wanna ask this question. How is a statement like that possible? As I was reading this and preparing for the sermon, like that just jumped off the page at me that if our hearts don't condemn us, we believers can have confidence before God. How is that possible? How can, we, how can any finite sinful human being made from dirt, how are we able to have confidence to stand before an eternal, holy, perfect, just, 
almighty and sovereign God. And yet John says we can. We're right back where we started in verse 19. He kind of bookends this entire section of this letter with these two ideas. And because we have certainty, we can now, this can lead to confidence in our faith. And I believe John lays out three proofs in this passage that can validate your salvation in Jesus Christ. Three outward signs that believers can expect to experience throughout their lives of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So you'll see on your handout the question, how? How can we as believers have confidence in our salvation before a holy God? What are the proofs that we can expect? Number one is answers to prayer. How can we have confidence in our salvation before a holy God? One is answers to prayer. So again, verse 21 says, Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him. Do you know what that is? That's answers to prayer. He says, if our hearts don't condemn us. Okay, so at times it will, but if when, in those seasons of life, when our hearts don't condemn us, what do they do? Well, what's the opposite of condemnation? Approval. We can be assured as Christians, confidently. If our hearts assure us that we really do belong to the truth, although we have sinned, we nevertheless belong to the Lord and that Christ forgives us as we confess our sins. So if our hearts assure us, we can have confidence before God. And what does this look like? It looks like an unreserved boldness before our Father in heaven. We can have confidence to speak to God. This is not arrogant. This is not boastful in any way. This has nothing to do with you, but we can be sure that our Father in heaven knows us, he loves us, he hears us, and he desires to give us the things that we need in this life. I mean, it's incredible to think about that we as Christians can come before the throne of grace of the everlasting God, the one who is outside of time, the one who created all things. And we can approach the throne of God with boldness, the author of Hebrews says, an expectation that he will hear us, he'll hear our confessions, he'll hear our struggles, he'll hear our praises, and he'll hear our petitions. Now, one important thing to note here, however, is this word, whatever. This is not some liberating word that means anything you want, you got it. John is not writing to first century Christians and saying, hey, health, wealth, and prosperity, you believe in God, you can have confidence before him and whatever you ask, he's going to give it to you. That's not what this word means. If you read that word in the context of the rest of this letter and scripture for that matter, you could, you could read it as such. John essentially is saying, we have confidence before God and receive whatever is in the will of God for the glory of God or to advance the kingdom of God. Those are the things that he will, without a doubt, 100% answer your prayers. And we should see that. Fact is, by the way, as believers, we really don't want anything outside of the will of God. Because those things ultimately do not lead to the abundant life that Christ said he came to give us. So although it may seem like, man, if I had a little bit of extra money in my bank account or I didn't struggle with this particular illness or whatever, you fill in the blank, whatever problems that you may be bringing before God. And listen, most of us, 
We talked about it in youth group. Elijah prayed for three and a half years for rain. Most of us won't even pray for three and a half minutes for something that we consider really important. Now, some of us do, and we come before God every morning, every afternoon, every evening, in the middle of the night sometimes, asking him for a specific request to be answered, and yet we know from prayer that prayer is more, is, it's not so much about changing God as it is about aligning our hearts with his will. And so whatever we ask, we need to ultimately bend our will towards him and know that if it is in the will of God for the glory of God or to advance the kingdom of God, he will 100% hear our prayers and answer them. But hear me out, God answers our prayers not because, not because we're special in any way as far as in and of ourselves, but it's because we are his children through Christ. This is where the assurance of our salvation comes into play. The Bible is clear that the throne of God is only open in the name of Jesus. One of the things we spoke about at youth group this past year, whenever we talked about prayer for about 13 weeks, was that was why we pray in Jesus' name. That is not a tagline that Christians throw at the end of a prayer just to kind of end it because things are getting awkward and I don't really know what to say. So in Jesus' name, amen. No, those words mean something. And for the life of me, I still didn't look it up. There is an author that wrote a book called Praying Backwards. And in that book, he talks about the idea of, listen, I challenge you in your prayer life, rather than ending your prayer with in Jesus' name, start it that way. And it reorients your brain before you come to God and say, hey, God, I'm having a rough week. I need this done. I need that done. Encourage me here. Heal this sickness. In Jesus' name, amen. Rather, you come to God and say, God, I am only here. I am only able to approach you because of the name of Jesus Christ. And see if that humbles you and really consider the things that you want to talk to him about at that point. In John chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus says, whatever, there's the same phrasing, whatever you ask in my, in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Praying in Jesus' name means something. But not only that, in Matthew chapter seven, very famous passage of scripture, verses seven through 11, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? And then he says something really interesting. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, this is why it's a validation of our salvation because we are one of his children. And if evil human beings know how to give good gifts to their kids, how much more so will our father wanna give us good things? Answers to prayer is the proof, number one. Number two, how can we have confidence in our salvation? Obeying God's commands. how we can have confidence in our salvation is that we obey God's commands. So dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us and we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Verse 23, now this is his command that we believe in the name of son Jesus Christ and love one another as he has commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he 
in him. So John tells us that obedience to God's commands is another confirmation of our salvation. Because we keep, that word keep there, this means to guard or to have a watchful eye over. That should be our approach to this book, to guard it and to keep a watchful eye over it in our lives. As Christians, we are to be studying, learning, and preoccupied with God's commandments that we guard it as something precious to us. And a collective gulp just happened across the room because a lot of you didn't even open your Bibles this past week. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, man, yeah, I need to keep a watch over it, what it says, how it instructs me to live. I would... I would I would venture out to say that if you are here, you claim to be a Christian, you're not ashamed to admit that, but you have an apathetic attitude towards God's word and his commandments, I have to ask you, what are you doing? This is something that is supposed to be kept and guarded and watched over. Not only that, we don't just keep his commandments though, we don't just look after them. He continues on and says, and we do what is pleasing in his sight. We practice what we know to be true. It's not just enough about knowing. Knowing things about God is not what ultimately pleases him. It's knowing what we know about God and then living out the things that he has commanded us to do. And if that is what pleases him, doing what is pleasing in his sight, I think we can therefore conclude that disobedience displeases God. Obedience pleases him, therefore disobedience must displease him. Ephesians chapter four tells us that as believers, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know who wants to be the person that raises their hand and says, yep, that's me. I'm the one who grieves the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. But when we know what what we ought to be doing as Christians and we don't live in obedience to that, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians five, Paul in the very next chapter tells us as Christians, to walk as children of light and discern what is, what is pleasing to the Lord. This should be an everyday practice of Christians. And how do we do that? Reading his word and keeping it and studying it and then living it out. And by the way, this obedience arises not out of obligation. It's not, oh, I got saved and then, oh man, now I, gotta, now I have to do all this stuff. Now I'm a Christian. Now I have to listen to what God says. It's not that. Oh man, ever since you became a Christian, you go to church all the time. You read your Bible all the time. Your prayer life is great. Yeah, I have to. You have no idea. No, it's not out of obligation. It's not out of, I have to do this now. It's because I love the one who issues these commandments. It should, it is the delight of our heart to please our master as believers. Funny enough, the old hymn, Blessed Assurance, has a lyric that goes like this, perfect submission. That doesn't sound like fun. And yet, the author of that old hymn says, perfect submission, all is at rest. Because I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed. See, I wanna urge you this morning, do not submit yourself to anything else in this life because you will be severely disappointed and let down. That's what it means that Christ is the cornerstone of our faith, that it's not built on anything else. 
and obedience to God, perfect submission can give us rest. We can be called blessed, whether we have a lot or whether we have nothing. If you have perfect submission, perfect obedience in Christ, you can have rest. You can have assurance. You can have that blessed assurance. So as believers, we can have confidence in our salvation. How? Through answers to prayer, through obedience to God's commands, and thirdly and lastly, how can we have confidence? The testimony of the Holy Spirit. He concludes the passage this way, and the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. Christian, I want to remind you that God wants you to have assurance of your salvation. See, John is saying that if you belong to the truth, you will know. There are no doubt. I've said it before. I just want to reiterate this. There's fluctuating degrees of assurance. There are certain factors involved. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying you can't have questions at different times. But there should be a, let me, let me put it this way, life Let me just, I don't, I don't, I don't, don't want to back myself into that corner. So we'll, just, we'll leave it there. Life is different for every single one of us, okay? But the big picture is that as genuine, as genuine born-again believers, the Holy Spirit has sealed your heart in Christ and is now leading you in that full assurance. If you want proof of that, Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, verse 14 says, for all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. You could say sons and daughters, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So the spirit testifies to us that we are children of God. Even when you condemn yourself, if you are a genuine believer, you have the Holy Spirit there to remind you, no, 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 you are in Christ, you are sealed, you are a child of God. This is the office work of the Holy Spirit. There is a strong persuasion, a strong tug that always brings us back to the reality that we belong to the Lord. And this is not just a, oh, I I feel saved today type of mentality. This is not emotionally driven. This is a biblically based God-gifted confidence that we can have knowing that we belong to the truth. And so for everyone here today, I don't know your hearts. I know many of you personally, and I know that you would consider yourself a Christian, but I don't know your hearts. I don't know where you are this morning, but I want you to know the Lord. And the key to that is just as our text said, it, don't, don't overcomplicate it. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin, put your faith in Christ. And if that's you today, if you have believed, you have called upon the name of the Lord, you have repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, it is my honor today to simply remind you that you are secure, that you have assurance 
No matter what life throws at you, you have assurance of your salvation. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You can live with certainty despite an ongoing battle with a condemning heart that we all struggle with. You can be comforted knowing that God is greater than your condemning heart. And I urge you to press on in the obedience that you no doubt are already displaying or attempting to display in your day-to-day life. And above all of that, I'm here to remind you that the Holy Spirit is there to remind you of your saving faith. And if you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand, if you're unsure about the status of your eternal soul, maybe you just don't even think about it. You don't want to think about it because it's terrifying. You're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, being born again, salvation, redemption. Maybe you're curious. Would you please talk to somebody today? So you can use these next couple of moments to seek out one of the pastors or the elders here at Redemption. I'll stay down front. Don't interrupt Greg, he'll be on the guitar. I mean, interrupt him, I don't know. Andy will figure it out, right? Talk to somebody today. If you are not sure, you can ask somebody in your family that has been nodding along to the sermon the whole time like, yeah, yeah, amen. I know exactly where I'm going. I know the eternal state of my soul. And you're like, how how can you know? Talk to them. See, because the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, at an acceptable time, I listened to you and in the day of salvation, I helped you. He's quoting uh, God in Isaiah 49. And so that's a promise from God. And then he goes on to say, see, now, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. I don't know what you're running from. I don't know what you're nervous about. But if you are nervous and you're sweating a little bit, like, man, I really don't know. I wanna lead you with two, I wanna wanna end with two questions. One, if you were to die today, because none of us are promised tomorrow, none of us are promised the next couple of minutes, we don't know. But if you were to die today, do you know if you would go to heaven or hell? Do you know if you would go be in eternity with God forever and forever and forever and forever or eternally separated from God for forever? Do you know? Because if you don't, that's something that you should seek out today. Because as Paul says, now is the day of salvation. Do it now because tomorrow's not promised. And not only that, if you were to stand before God today and he asked, why should I let you into my eternal kingdom? What would you say? Because as believers who have had a genuine salvation experience, I can tell you about a time in my life when I was 14 years old when I didn't know nothing about nothing about the Bible, Jesus, anything. And yet I sat under a preacher that told me I'm a sinner. I need to repent of my sin. I'm on my way to hell. And the only way to be saved is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I freaking gripped that pew in front of me because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I was supposed to go up. I didn't know what everybody was gonna think about me. But guess what? Holy Spirit drew me and I went to the altar and I got saved. And I can tell you right now, if I were to die today, I would go to heaven. And if I stood before God and he said, why should I let you, Marty, into my eternal kingdom, you filthy sinner? I would say, you're absolutely right. I don't deserve to spend eternity with you, but it's because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, dying in my place, the death that I deserved because of my sin, I place all my faith and trust in him because he not only died for me, he rose again, he was resurrected, conquering sin and death, and I place my faith in him for salvation. That's the only way I'm able to be in. And I say that with assurance. I want you to know that you know that you know that you belong to the truth. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, God, for the truth of your gospel. Thank you, Lord, for assurance of our salvation.
Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to go throughout life when I make mistakes, when I screw up, that I don't have to sit there and wonder, does God still forgive me? Because my forgiveness is sure. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The work is done. And that salvific work has been applied to my heart and I can rest assured knowing that I know that I know that I am in Christ and I am secure. Father, I pray that for these people in this room this morning. And if there is somebody here that does not know, please give them a, an unreserved boldness in this moment. Empower them by your Holy Spirit to step forward and, and to ask somebody. Father, thank you that salvation is still offered to us today that you have not wrapped things up, that you have not concluded this era of, of life, that we have not necessarily entered into uh, the fullness of your kingdom come because you still desire that many would be saved. And if there's anybody here that needs that to happen, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work on their hearts. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Encourage us as believers as well. If we're in a state of doubting, Lord, reassure our hearts this morning. Allow us to do business with you this morning as we worship in Jesus' name.